Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Alex Pearson. This is On Point. Today on your podcast, we sort through some of the federal government controversial COVID spending that just doesn't add up. Now the ombudsman is investigating, so we'll get an inside look also at the man inside who wants to radically change Canada's economy. What is Mark Carney's plan, and can we do it? Plus, it's time to say goodbye to tipping? Hmm, Toronto restaurants are starting to let go of the practice. We'll explain it. Let's get going. We knew it would be difficult to make accurate predictions given the unprecedented situation, which is one of the reasons these updates are so important. Today, we are revising our revenue projections from $156.3 billion to $150.6 billion, a significant factor in our projected deficit rising to $38.5 billion. While the current level of government spending and deficits are not sustainable over the long run, they are necessary today. Well, we now know the cure is more costly than the disease. Ontario has the highest deficit in our history. Just staggering numbers that confirm we're in a recession and it can last years. Alex Pearson with you on what's been a bit of a bit of a sobering Wednesday, August 12th. Great to have you here along for the ride. And yes, this is our second financial update from the finance minister here in Ontario. And uh, Rod Phillips, uh, I guess, delivering, well, a much worse financial picture of this pandemic. And make no mistake, I mean, this is going to take years to pay off. And, and we knew it would be bad, but these numbers are double the initial projections. We're talking $18 billion more. And we know that more spending's coming because millions are still out of work and we still could face a second hit. And as uh, Mr. Phillips said today, you know, it's official. We're in a recession. Yeah, we, are, we are in a recession today in Ontario, uh, and I would argue across Canada. Ontario faces a long road to economic recovery. While every recession is different, it is worth noting it took between 28 and 88 months to return to pre-recession employment in the past three downturns. Can you imagine? I mean, this is, the, this is way worse than those. That's a long time. And so Phillips uh, was asked, you know, how are we going to pay for this? And he said, no, taxes are not going to go up. All right. So then, yeah, how do you pay for it? Uh, They're going to have to be cuts. And I think just like the private sector, you look to the very bloated public sector that's going to have to lean itself out, you know, learn how to do more with less. And that's just a reality. We all face that in the private sector. And they certainly can. There's lots of fat to be trimmed in the public sector. And when you look at, uh, you know, where you could trim, I mean, public sector workers on average make 14% more than their private sector counterpoints. They've got massive pensions and defined benefits. So, yeah, there's fat you can trim. When you look at the numbers of uh, how many, you know, hiring between 2000 and 2011 in healthcare and social service employment, that increased by 39%. And then you look at education, they increased hiring 34%. And those are back in the Don Drummond days. And that's when he was warning that the runaway hiring wasn't sustainable, and then they just kept hiring and raising wages. And now in 2020, 
you look at the Sunshine List, there are 148,000 public sector workers on that list, which means they make over $100,000. So yeah, maybe don't lay them off, but they could certainly take a bit of a pay cut. Because you know what? That's happening in households right across this country. Certainly it's happening in our household. I mean, if you didn't lose your job, a lot of people were offered a reduced salary or pay freezes. And I know that those in the public you know, sector can't fathom that, but it's not only doable, it's fair. You know, you don't lose your job. You take a bit of a cut, you'll make it back one day, but then, hey, there you go. There was some good news. Uh, jobs have started coming back. We have 528,000 jobs that have been added in the last couple of uh, months. And then the other area, I mean, we've got the real estate market, which I don't know how it's doing it, but it's on fire. And retail sales are up by 14%. So that is the good news as we open up. But we, we don't know when this thing's going to bottom out. And the finance minister says, yeah, there's a buffer of $9.6 billion in case we get that second wave. But... The premier says, you know, it, it could go way, way higher because right across the province, there are a lot of people hurting. Right now, Cynthia, there's so many people hurting out there. Families are hurting and 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 people and companies are, are dropping like flies right now. And I, I just have to protect them, get the economy back on its feet and, and just keep going. But the number one, my number one concern is protecting the people of Ontario and, and, and small business owners that are just struggling like I've never seen. It's true. People are, in fact, struggling. And um, look, so this is our second financial update. We got a lot of detail, even if we don't like it. It's a lot more than we got at the federal level, because remember, we got barely any details of that. And you think about it, if Ontario's this bad, way worse than they projected, can you imagine how much worse the federal numbers actually are? Maybe that's why Justin Trudeau is not letting those numbers out. You know, not until Mark Carney comes up with that recovery fantasy that's going to offer, I guess, a lot of free stuff. But I bet you that I bet you we'd be even more shocked because don't forget the parliamentary budget officer, uh, Yves Giroux, has been asking for numbers since the start of this thing. And he can't get any clarity as to where the actual federal spending is at. And there was a special sitting of parliament today, one of two this August, because apparently we don't have a parliamentary system anymore. And we have just kind of accepted that, which is very sad. And Prime Minister Trudeau skipped it because he's on vacation, of course. And sure, everyone deserves a vacation. But no other leader in this country, no premier, no mayor, no one else is taking a vacation. No one even in his party is taking a vacation. Because we're in a pandemic. But the Prime Minister likes to get in his uh, personal days. No question. He wanted to skip today because he doesn't want to have any more questions on the Wee scandal, which, as we heard in te Tuesday's testimony, just simply raised more questions. And today, Block Leader uh, demanded that Bill Morneau, Katie Telford, and Justin Trudeau step aside, or he's going to file a motion in October to bring an unconfidence vote that he is hoping will trigger an election. Things are getting worse, and we are getting to the point where the question becomes... Which is worse, keeping them and this government in place or creating a temporary distortion in the management of the crisis 
in going into an election, which might replace them with people better suited for the job. Our point is that as one important voice for Quebec, we observe that this government might not be uh, worthy of our trust anymore. Yeah. So there was even Francois Lachette, and uh, he was pretty ticked off today that the prime minister skipped out on this special uh, parliamentary sitting. And the bloc would need the Conservatives' help to bring the government down. They would need at least three, maybe four more votes, which they could get. They could get that with the Green, the who have three. There's a couple of independents, maybe Jody Wilson-Raybould. I think it's clear, though, that the NDP is going to serve as a liberal puppet. And while no one says uh, they want an election, I'm not sure I agree with that. Because Blanchette points out rightly, you know, if we can't trust this government now, do you actually trust them to get us out of this thing? And I, I feel the anger out there. I see the anger out there. And I get the sense that there are actually a lot of people who would say, you know what, to hell with this. I don't like what I'm seeing. We'll go to an election. And I actually think Blanchette would do better in Quebec. Maybe not the NDP. I mean, no one can really afford an election, but by October, the uh, Conservatives will have a new leader in. Likely McKay or O'Toole. Maybe Leslin Lewis will uh, surprise everybody, but they will have a leader in place. They will have a plan rolled out. They will be fundraising. And uh, Bloch doesn't care. They've got nothing to lose. And uh, I think they feel pretty confident. And if the weed charity and every other scandal keeps dripping out, who knows? But again, I think the thing to watch is Mark Carney. I think he's going to come out with a very progressive recovery plan that's going to offer things like basic income. I think you're going to th see things like national daycare. I think you're going to see, oh, every green project you can imagine. It's going to be a green utopia. But he's going to offer things that people are going to say, oh, my God, free stuff. Forget the corruption. I like free stuff. That's what I think his plan will be. But I could be wrong. All righty now, time to dig into the headlines where we often find those hidden news nuggets. They get buried, but shouldn't because they do end up being some of the most important stories you'll hear. And Tom Korski is managing editor with Black Locks Reporting. And boy, Tom, your action is uh, getting some results. You guys broke a big story about this Quebec company in a liberal riding, which happened to win this sole source contract over 10 years to make PPE. They get handed 383 million bucks. They have produced not one mask because I guess you have to have a plant in order to make them. And now the ombudsman is looking into this. Procurement ombudsman is looking into it because there was uh, something very strange, Alex. There was uh, a legal notice of the contract that was issued by the Department of Public Works. Pretty routine. It happens every day. Unfortunately, this is a reporting by the government to the citizens, the taxpayers. And the notice said uh, a couple of strange things. It said this was a competitive contract. It was not. It was an untendered, sole-sourced contract. There was nothing competitive about it. Mm -hmm. And the notice has put the value of the contract uh, at about $93 million if you added in uh, other masks. Purchase for Medicom came to about $113 million. Well, that's lowball, uh, and that was issued after internal yeah. memos showed Medicom had uh, received a $382 million contract. So the procurement ombudsman is saying, you can't do that. You, <laughs> you, you must be straight with the people, and uh, they're looking into it. But how is there such a disparity between the numbers? I mean, $383 million 
is nowhere close to the figure you give. It's inexplicable, and also the element of uh, untendered contracts. We've discussed in the past, Alex, untendered contracts generally drive people crazy because there's no way to uh, ensure taxpayers are getting value, that the government is getting the best price, that the best vendor got the job. If you just pick someone and call them and give them a contract, you don't really know those other aspects. And so that's why we have a procurement ombudsman to look at exactly those questions. Why was this contract misrepresented by the federal agency that issued it? I guess they'll find out. Yeah, it's it's amazing. Uh, You know, procurement is one of those things that isn't very sexy. But, you know, given the financial state of our country right now, if you can actually, you know, get the competition to bid, you actually get better value for the taxpayer. And this, to me, just sounds like a flat-out scam in a liberal riding. And again, the numbers are so, so far off. It just, uh, you know, here we go with yet another investigation. I don't even know how many we're at right now, Um, which, and I'm going to get to the we stuff because I want to gauge your opinion on that. But the Trudeau government, which I think this is staggering to me. So the Trudeau government spends nearly 150 million bucks on a COVID-19 test kit. It didn't work in clinical trials. And Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, and I remember this, he singles out Spartan Bioscience, giving them all this praise in this plan to mobilize industry. It's within days of the pandemic outbreak. And this cube was supposed to detect positive samples, but it only worked 47% of the time. And now internal records that you guys find show that the funding was approved, you know, weeks into, um, you know, the test getting done, but it then got recalled. So they award the money before they they know the product works. Is that how that works? They received research grants from the National Research Council. And then the large contract, uh, $149 million, for these test kits. The cabinet was absolutely enthusiastic about Spartan Bioscience. The Minister of Industry went on and on at one point with reporters. He said it was an amazing product. You could get a test result. In less than 30 minutes, he could see them being deployed at train stations and airports, and it was going to be fantastic and great for the nation in our moment of crisis. Problem, they shipped these to the National Microbiology Laboratory in Winnipeg. They did clinical trials, and they didn't work. If you took them out of the lab, the test kits didn't work. Any that were licensed and went into the market were recalled. This all happened within the space of a few weeks. So the question was, why didn't you test them first before you authorized the money? There's no answer to that. It seems like a valid question. It was money. Well, yeah, a lot of money. And so it leads me to two questions. Where's the money now? Do we get that back? And did Health Canada sign on this? Those are excellent questions. Health Canada was certainly aware of the contract. And, you know, what's the context of, you know, this is all under this umbrella. We just find out today, Alex, the Department of Finance, since the pandemic started, has borrowed borrowed over half a trillion dollars, trillion with a T. So much money has gone out the door in such a short period of time. $500 billion is almost twice what the national budget was a couple of years ago. It's a staggering sum. A lot of money went out, not a lot of oversight, and now you start to see the follow-up. Factories that got 
mass contracts, though they weren't in production, uh, test kits that didn't work in clinical trials. Those were really expensive, mm-hmm. and people will be paying for that for a long time. Well, not just that. People are you know, thinking that we have all these products, whether it's PPE or testing kits that are going to protect us in a second wave, and none of these things are available. And you know, money aside, it's just, uh, it's crazy. And, and again, we have gotten now two Ontario updates as to the fiscal situation. All we got was a very vague snapshot from, from Ottawa. And I'm beginning to see why, because they have, like you said, they have blown so much money and gotten so little value for it. There's no question. I think it's going to be staggering when we get the true dollar figure. Um, let me let me talk to you about Bardish Chagger because she testified yesterday about the We Charity again, and um, not only did did she not know what happened to the thirty million dollars that the We Charity got or whether it's been returned, which is always nice, but you know she testified that she had not spoken to anybody at the We Charity before this proposal was granted, and now we find out in yesterday's te- testimony that oh yeah, she actually did talk to them five days before they get the proposal of forty three point five million dollars. Of course, she can't remember what they talked about, um, which is convenient. I mean, you forget you're talking to Craig Kielberger? For half an hour. Yeah. (laughs) For half (laughs) an hour. Spent 30 minutes. She called him. Minister called the uh, Kielberger boy. Spent 30 minutes on the phone. Was vague on details. Five days later, the uh, National Student Aid Program was announced for which Minister Chagger later signed an agreement that would have paid We Charity a $43.5 million grant to manage the program. And We Charity had its submission on Cabinet's desk the day the program was announced. That crucial April 17th phone call, why do MPs focus in on that? That's the first point of contact between Cabinet and We Charity about what became this program that went horribly awry. Yeah, and what we learned yesterday is that they are absolutely full of crap. And I'm being polite when I say that. They lied. She lied on the stand, um, which may explain her body language and the anger resonating uh, lightning bolts coming out of her eyes. But yeah, it's just it's just unbelievable. But of course, hopefully people are paying attention. Great work, Tom. Always appreciate talking to you. Thank you. Good to talk to you, Alex. That, of course, Tom Korski, Blacklocks reporting. It's subscription-based and worth every penny. Boy, do they get some doozies. All right, great to have you on this Wednesday. You know, for all the obsessing we do over Trump and Joe Biden's running mate, I really would love it if Canadians actually spent more time worrying about what goes on in this country, because apparently there's lots going on. There's certainly plenty of corruption piling up for Justin Trudeau that should keep folks tuned in. And then you've got all these rumors spinning about Bill Morneau's demise and Mark Carney's sudden entry. And people should be actually quite curious about what might be behind this. And over the weekend, I was reading the Toronto Star. Yes, it happens. And it was reporting that Trudeau was looking at ways to, quote, seize what he calls a once in a lifetime opportunity. Because apparently he sees this pandemic as a time to radically and aggressively implement his progressive utopia on things like childcare, income support, and of course, climate change. Hey, the sky's the limit, and apparently Mark Carney will be a willing partner. Michael Tobe joining us now is a columnist at Troy Media, Looney Politics, Washington Times contributor, and a former speechwriter, Prime Minister Stephen Harper. Good to have you, Michael. Thanks for having me, Alex. 
I mean, Mark Carney has always been rumored to be interested in politics. I mean, I always thought there'd be a leadership, um, you know, run for him at some point. I was, however, surprised to see him appear this week. And then, of course, the rumor mill on Bill Morneau exiting or being thrown under the bus started to happen really quickly. Um, But there's no question there's something brewing behind the scenes. Yeah, there's definitely something brewing behind the scenes. I mean, obviously, we don't know what at this stage. Some people have suggested that Bill Morneau, the current finance minister of Canada, that his days may be numbered in that role. I'm not 100% sure of that yet. I think what may be happening is that Mark Carney, who is the former Bank of Canada governor and was also the governor of the Bank of the UK as well. He's held two very esteemed roles. I think that Mark Carney, who was touted to be a potential federal liberal leader a few years ago, as you may remember, Alex, I think that now he wants to dip his toes into that in those waters. The question is how far he wants to go. Based on various things I've seen and John Iveson of the National Post and others have suggested that he's going to be an advisor to Prime Minister Justin Trudeau when it comes to COVID-19. And that Mm -hmm. would probably be, based on his business background, ensuring that the enormous amount of spending that's already been done doesn't continue to get even larger. But that's just a guess on my part. But whether he's actually planning to, say, run in the now open seat of York Centre in Toronto, which just recently opened up, is a possibility, I guess. Um, You know, Mr. Levitt, Michael Levitt, who held the seat, is leaving to go on to other things in the private sector. So that seat is potentially open for him. But I don't think that he's basically going to make the move quite yet. I think he's basically planning in certain stages because being an MP in Justin Trudeau's party would be certainly a step down. I'm not even sure that finance minister would necessarily be regarded as a step up for him. I think he wants the whole enchilada, which would be party leader and eventually to become prime minister. Yeah, I mean, I didn't know this, but he doesn't even have to run or or be elected. Uh, he could be appointed to a minister position, Correct. which I find very, very odd, um, you know, because he doesn't represent the will of the people. He would be put in there by the prime minister. But the interesting thing about Mark Carney is, I mean, he's a rock star to a lot of people. Um, and a lot of people, I mean, there's no question, he's smart. But mm-hmm. he has moved He's not a centrist anymore. He's moved further left. He's married to, a, you know, an eco-warrior. He's very big on the green climate agenda. I mean, he openly speaks about the demise of the oil sands and that it is not part of the future. And so when I hear that the prime minister sees this pandemic as, you know, a chance for his progressive dreams, you know, and going big on all these things, how else are we to take this? Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Mark Carney's wife, Diana, is, as you say, as we like to call them, an eco-warrior or someone who is fascinated by the environment and obviously believes in climate change, the green movement and various other things. And she's taken it basically to the nth degree. And one has to assume that Mark Carney, he may not be a carbon copy of his wife, obviously, he's his own person, he has his own individual personality, but he may be very much in line with those ideas. However, if that is the case, and we'll have to suppose that, you know, that there's certainly a possibility of it, that would also mean, Alex, that he's in line with Justin Trudeau's minority liberal government, who obviously holds a lot of those positions, wants to represent that point of view, and wants to put it forward. I think that certainly Mark Carney will be used in the role for economics and finance and what he's known for. And yes, I agree with you. He is a bright guy. There's no question of that. 
wouldn't have held the roles in public life that he's held already if he wasn't. And it doesn't mean that the liberals don't realize that he could be very talented and useful to them, sort of the way if people sort of think back a little bit to the way the liberals used to tout Frank McKenna, the former New Brunswick leader, who was long touted as a possible person who could run for the federal liberal leadership, could almost literally win, be a juggernaut, but never did. Carney, however, I think is taking a different route. I think that he wants to play a role as an advisor, you know, align himself directly with this liberal government or liberal party. And if Justin Trudeau continues to struggle, and he is battling for his political life right now when it comes to the We Charity scandal, well, guess what? Mr. Carney would be in a perfect position to swoop in and take over, either as a minister without portfolio, which you alluded to, which he doesn't need to be elected to, or he may just choose to become party leader at some point. You never know. Right. And certainly interesting because um, Yves Francois, uh, Francois Blanchette uh, said, you know, he'll file a motion in October and yes. uh, he's all too willing now to pull this government down if he gets the cooperation of the other parties. And so we could actually be looking at a fall election. And by then, you know, if Mark Carney builds an economic, um, you know, recovery plan, which we have not yet seen from this prime minister, no. um, you know, and he comes out with things like basic income and all this green, uh, you know, technology development. And, you you know, you put these big child care, national child care strategies. And that is a lot of um, candy in the window for a lot of people to get very, very excited about and forget about the controversies like we and all the rest of it. Yeah, no, you're right. It's a lot of dangling carrots. And you know, really for the liberals, much like any government who would be in that position, they need to obviously change the channel or change the narrative, as I often like to say, where you're trying to push a story or a storyline in a completely different direction that benefits you. And it's obvious because obviously everything with We Charity is negative for Justin Trudeau and his government. We know that. So they need to change the channel and make something positive. Justin Trudeau's numbers, as we know, during COVID-19 went up, unsurprisingly, because he gave a lot of money to a lot of people, a lot of individuals and corporations to stay afloat during these difficult times. All completely understandable, of course, but the, when it happens, it doesn't matter whether you're on the political left or political right. If you're handing out, quote unquote, free money, even if it's not free, it makes you look good and it increases your numbers. Now the polling numbers for Justin Trudeau are starting to drop. Angus Reid Institute and others are showing that the 55 to 64% popular numbers that he roughly had in March, April, May of this year have now dipped below 50% and will continue to drop as long as We Charity remains in the news cycle. So the key is, yes, you're absolutely right. If a Mark Carney or anybody else gets involved, they need to dangle certain carrots, including economic carrots, that people will take, you know, that will help them out. They will help their families. It'll help their companies. Whatever Justin Trudeau offers, that's where he's always successful. When he offers free things, people love him. It's when yes. he has to do hard things, they hate him because they realize he doesn't have the competency to handle things on a day-to-day -day basis. Not nice sure. to say, but it's true. Well, it is. And we know that he likes splashy things and uh, rock stars. He loves the astronaut. He brought her in as governor general. Now we're seeing right. how that turns out. And now he's yeah. got Mark Carney. And again, the baubles always shine at the beginning. But as we have seen over the years, the shine is definitely off on this party. And so no question, they're going to go big with whatever the recovery plan is, whether it makes economic sense or not. But he clearly and fundamentally wants to change Canada which he doesn't seem to take a lot of pride in, um, which I think becomes clear by the day. Michael, I'm up against the clock on this one, but I do appreciate your time. 
My pleasure as always. Thank you. Michael Tobe joining us, columnist you can read in the Troy Medium, Looney Politics and Washington Times, and of course a regular here with us. Well, we know the pandemic's forced every business to pivot, change how they deliver almost everything. And of course, no more so than I think the hospitality industry. And one of the changes we're starting to see is the whole practice of tipping. And we're starting to see Toronto businesses and a number across Ontario just saying, we're getting rid of this practice. So no more will you see 11 or 15%, you know, tacked on to the bill. Instead, it'll be built into the price of the meal. So the meal goes up. But then the money doesn't just go to the service server. It is then spread out between the staff. So it is a smart business decision or is it just a matter of doing the right thing? Let's ask someone who might know, Zane Koplansky. He is the former assistant to Pre- Premier David Peterson, Prime Minister John Turner. He hosts his own radio show and is well-known owner of Koplansky's Delic- Delicat- Delicatessen. There you go. You got it. There you go. I got it. All right. Good to have you, Zane. You are a big yeah. fan of this. Why? Well, I'm a, I'm a huge uh, opponent of tipping. The, the tipping culture, I believe, is the root of all evil in the restaurant business. It yeah. separates it separates the front of house from the back of house. That is the servers from the cooks. It turns your diners into victims or marks where your servers will take a look and they'll decide, I think this is somebody who, who can pay. I'm going to give them better service. And that's what happens in the industry when your uh, service is, is based on your ability to pay for it. And North America is the only place that this happens, Alex, in Europe, and I've been a server in Europe, and in Australia and New Zealand, and I've worked there too. They don't do this. They are professionals. You attract people who want and love to serve, who want and love to cook, not just quick buck artists who are in it for, you know, the, the, uh, the money. I mean, look, I served for six, seven years. It put me through college. It paid all my bills. I did very, very well at it and learned very quickly. Never judge uh, those you serve because you don't know who's going to actually give you the best tip. But it's one of those things where I think people will say, well, hold on a second. It should be up to me, the customer, if I want to pay more. You know what, Alex? I'm not suggesting anybody should not be allowed to spend their money however they want to. If you want to give somebody $5, $10, $50 to thank them for taking such great care of you, that's your right. No one's going to ever tell you that you can't do that. What I'm suggesting, though, is that the culture of tipping, where that that tip, a minimum of 15%, is expected, that has to go. Why should you be compensating restaurant owners for their labor costs? Why shouldn't that be built into the price? And you look at the menu price, for what it should be, which is the actual value. And then you make your decision. Did I have a great experience? Do I want to give this person a gratuity? Or, you know what? I didn't have a great experience and I'm never coming back. That leaves the power in your hands. Okay, so in in the way that it's supposed to work, the price of the meal in these restaurants that get rid of tipping, they're building in a hospitality charge, and then that gets split between the busboy, the kitchen staff, and the server in a pot at the end of the night, right? Well, there's a, there's a bunch of different models of how this could work, but essentially it's this. You have to pay people a livable wage, not minimum wage, not $15 an hour, but something that they can actually live on. You live in the city of Toronto. Could you, could you make a, a, your rent or make your mortgage payments off $15 an hour? Of course you can't. And why should somebody who's uh, waiting tables be making 50 or $60 an hour in tips 
and maybe not declaring those tips when somebody in the kitchen who's uh, who's experienced and gone to school and apprenticed and is only earning, you know, 16, 17, 18 dollars an hour. It's grossly unfair, the current system and how that gets divided up. I really believe the government should step in, provide legislation so it's an even playing field, because what you referred to in the in the introduction that a few restaurants are doing this, they won't survive on their own. The competition is too fierce in this industry. We need the government to step in the same way they did with drunk, drunk driving, the same way they mm-hmm. did with 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 uh, spousal abuse, the same way they do with seatbelts. It's the right thing to do. Change this culture. Well, you're, you're right on, on one thing. I mean, on a couple of things. I mean, first of all, those who make tips, a lot of them don't declare nearly what they make in tips. And that's the beauty of making them is that you declare as much as you need to, and then you end up walking away with a lot more. But the other argument is, you know, why don't the restaurants just, you know, pay a livable wage and then we, the customers, don't have to worry about tipping? Well, it's because the, the competition aspect makes people uh, fight for every single dollar and customer that they can. You've got 8,000 restaurants in the greater Toronto area. It's an over-restauranted uh, uh, market. And so you're, 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 here's competition with the next guy. If you raise your prices by 30% because you're now paying a livable wage and the guy next door isn't, what's going to happen to you? And it happens over and over. This idea of getting rid of tipping isn't new. And every guy or woman who, who, every woman who's come along to try and fix this on their own has gotten mowed down like a, like a buzzsaw. That's why our own, even with 10 restaurants, even 100 restaurants, isn't enough to make this cultural shift away from the racist history and misogynist history of tipping and towards a much more professionalized system where the people who are doing this are are pros look alex you are a brilliant broadcaster i have well, that that's watched- generous but thanks okay. no, no no alex alex i have watched you and listened to you for years you are amazing at what you do i can imagine that as a server you were also great but that's not where your heart was your heart was in media and so being able to focus on your career and being able to build your career the way you needed to and leaving the serving profession to people whose hearts are in service, that's what I'm suggesting will happen when you change that culture. How popular is this becoming? Do you see it becoming a movement? Because if you're, if there's going to be radical change, as you well know, um, it will be now when everything's kind of stripped yeah. down to bare bones because this pandemic has changed everything. You're exactly right. And this is exactly our time. We've, we've seen restaurants like Pearl Morissette in Niagara, like Dispatch in Niagara, like Todd Perrin's uh, Mallard Cottage in Newfoundland and uh, Richmond Station in Toronto. And it's happening from coast to coast. There is a movement afoot, but even the slow change, incremental change that happens naturally isn't going to be enough to save and change our industry. We really need government to step up to the plate here. And let me tell you this, tipping is the tip of the iceberg. The entire food system, what farmers get for their crops, what fishers get for their fish, the way food is distributed. Why do we have a milk marketing board, Alex? Yeah. Why does the government need to regulate the price of wheat anymore? We, we have free markets. We have great farmers who are producing great items, and they need to be able to sell to the, the highest bidder to get fair value. 
So tipping is just the tip of the iceberg. Immigration, um, uh, equi- equitability, health and safety, a livable wage, all of these issues need to be addressed together in food legislation. And that's what I'm calling on the government to do. Well, it's an interesting it's an interesting conversation, and I'm hearing more about it. And ultimately, um, you know, if someone goes into that business uh, because they make good money in tips, it'll be up to them because it will drive a lot of people out of that business who who like to and go and will, make a quick look, buck. You, you were, I'm sure, a magnificent salesperson in that role, and with those same sales skills, you could apply them to any industry and make at least as much or more. And so leave the food business to people who love serving people food. That's what I'm suggesting. There will be a shakeout. For sure there will. And what I think will happen is the people who will be attracted to those 18 and 20, $25 jobs that will appear instead of the 30 and $40 an hour jobs will be people who are committed to the customer. They're committed to the restaurant. They're committed to your experience and building that relationship with you. So it's not, how much can I get this person to spend today so that I I get as much as I can out of them? And look at this, too. We haven't even talked about the dress code. Have you seen what the young women wear at the keg? Have you seen what the young women wear at the Cactus Club? It's disgusting. How can any restaurant owner... Alex? I've worked at those places. I I know, yeah. They they make you the bigger bucks. Yeah, well... (laughs) How can any restaurant manager say... I need you to show some more skin, dear. This is not sex work. This is an honorable profession, and people should be treated and addressed for the humanity that exists here, not for the, the sexualization and the objectification that currently happens. Well, we'll see where it goes, because no question the hospitality industry is going to be shaken to the core in the next couple of years, and it will take some real industry leaders to get this uh, change brought about. But we'll see if that changes here. I appreciate your uh, insight into this, Zane. Alex, you are a hero for raising this, and I really appreciate the fact that you're letting the voices be heard. And I can tell you that the leaders in our industry are behind this. They are scared. And the more of us that get together and speak with one voice, the better chance we have of making this happen. And I appreciate your time. Well, I just appreciate that Zane Kaplansky thinks I'm brilliant. See, Mom, some people do. <laughs> Nonetheless, I thanks, do. Zane. No, you are. Thank you. <laughs> All right. That is Zane Kaplansky, of course. They are open for business again. They've got a location out at the uh, restaurant or the airport, so you can go visit them there. We'll see what happens.